this is pain before gain. Mm -hmm. But this three or two months of pain that we have here could be bad. It could okay. be pretty severe because, I mean, look at Snap. It's down 40% today. Mm -hmm. um, that's a wipeout. And that mm -hmm. stock was already down something like 70% from its highs before it dropped 40% today. So the damage is, is pretty severe, but I think there's some fabulous long-term buying opportunities in, these, uh, in the market at these mm -hmm. current levels. So... What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, please be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, what's going on today? How you doing, Aaron? It's good to, good to see you. Um, good to be talking. Rough day in the markets. We'll get to it in a little bit, but there is a lot to talk about, a lot to talk about. Definitely. We have a ton of topics that we're going to get to in just a few moments. Uh, but quick, uh, if you're listening to this for the first time, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator and lifelong learner and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Luke, let's dive right in. Um, some breaking news last night uh, from Snap, basically as a reaction to so how the economy has been doing for the last few weeks. Uh, it's announced that it's going to miss its targets. And it seems that uh, social media and fang stocks and tech, everything seems to be down right now. Um, mm. is, is Snap right now that canary in the coal mine that's giving us warning for what the future is to come? Uh, yes. In short, yes. Uh, Snap's warning shot last night was a shot heard around the world. And it is maybe the scariest thing that I've heard in a very, very long time, maybe since the, the emergence of COVID. Because what's happening here is Snap is a lot of people can make fun of Snap as this kids only application or, you know, they can't monetize, la -la -de -do. well, that's all hocus pocus. Snap is a fantastic company led by very genius people, uh, very bold people, very visionary people. The app has a very sticky and highly engaged user base. Yes, that user base skews young, but as that young user base has grown up a little bit, you know, you've turned high school engaged users into working adult engaged users. So Snap is a very strong social media platform, very strong application. And the ad business is one of the fastest growing digital ad businesses in the world today, a very sizable digital ad business in the world today. And based on a lot of uh, reports and research that we've done, that ad platform has one of the highest ROIs. Uh, for consumer packaged goods and consumer uh, brands out there um, in the marketplace today. So Snap is a very strong digital advertising company. And that very strong digital advertising company is now going through a sudden, rapid, and violent deceleration 
in their growth because of deteriorating macroeconomic conditions. Now, that by itself is spooky. Four weeks ago, Snap said they're going to grow revenues at 20 to 25% year over year in Q2. Now, just four weeks later, they're saying they're not going to grow at 20%. That's a rapid you know, deceleration. And that, that's a four-week stretch where we're losing five, six, seven points of growth. Pretty wild. That by itself is scary. But throw that on top of last week we heard from Walmart, consumers slowing. Target, consumers slowing. Home Depot, consumers slowing. Lowe's, consumers slowing. TJ Maxx, consumers slowing. We heard from Abercrombie & Fitch today, consumers slowing. Mm-hmm. So we have this huge picture of a consumer slowdown going on right now. Then at the same time, you have Uber, hiring freeze, cutting costs. Robinhood, hiring freeze, cutting costs. You have all of these tech companies, Meta, doing the same thing. And now Snap is doing it as well. In addition to announcing a, they're going to miss Q2 targets, they said, hey, we're going to slow the pace of hiring. They've hired about 2,000 people over the last 12 months. This year, they're going to only hire about 500. So you're talking about a 75% reduction in the pace of hiring. Mm Mm-hmm. They're going to tighten their belts. Evan Spiegel is asking all of his managers to, where you can, cut costs. So they're in ultra-defense mode too. Mm-hmm. So what, you start connecting the dots, start painting this picture, whoa, the consumer is rapidly slowing. Everybody's saying, all these big retail guys are saying, hey, January, February, consumer was strong. March, pretty strong. Towards the end of March, they started to slow, and it's been real slow ever since. Every major retailer has said the exact same thing. So the consumer is slowing. Mm -hmm. Now, Snap is saying, hey, because the consumer is slowing, brands that sell to consumers aren't advertising as much. So Mm -hmm. ad spending is slowing. And that's causing the advertiser, the advertising platform like Snap, to itself cut its own cost. Snap uses things like Zoom, DocuSign, all of those things. So now spending on those platforms is going to um, get hit as well. So what you have to understand is that Snap's announcement doesn't just exist in isolation. It has upstream and downstream effects. And the upstream and downstream effects imply that this whole river is starting to slow dramatically. Uh Now throw in the macroeconomic data. Mm-hmm. Today, U.S. Uh, PMIs for services and manufacturing both dropped pretty significantly month over month. Mm-hmm. Home sales, new home sales dropped 16% month over month in April. Huge drop off, missed expectations by a mile. So the macroeconomic data is also starting to weaken mm-hmm. pretty dramatically. Again, put that into this cocktail we got going on here. And it's not pretty. Uh-huh. It's really scary. It looks like the economy is rapidly, rapidly slowing. Snap is the canary in the coal mine. Uh-huh. You're seeing Facebook get hit hard. You're seeing Alphabet get hit hard. You're seeing Amazon get hit hard. You're seeing Pinterest, the trade desk, everything across the digital ecosystem, Roku, Netflix, they're all getting hit hard. Uh-huh. This is the beginning of... Wall Street starting to understand that these this economic slowdown is very real. Mm-hmm. Does that mean stocks go meaningfully lower here? Maybe, maybe not. It all is going to depend on the Fed mm-hmm. and the course of inflation. Because at any point, 
Powell can turn on the dovish jets mm-hmm. and kickstart this economy and kickstart the markets and advertisers will start spending again, consumers will start spending again, enterprise software spending is going to go up. At any point, Powell can kick those jets on. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the Fed put we're talking about here. But Powell's not going to kick those jets on. He's made it abundantly clear. Mm-hmm. He's not going to kick those jets on until inflation meaningfully decelerates. And we've only got one month in the bag of inflation decelerating. So mm-hmm. we're going to want to see two, three, maybe four months of that deceleration before the Fed starts to actually pivot dovish, mm-hmm. which basically means from a macro perspective, what I think happens here is you get a pretty marked slowdown in economic activity mm-hmm. over the next two to three months. Mm-hmm. That slowdown lessens economic demand by enough to accelerate what is already a slowing trend in inflation. Mm -hmm. So that by July or August, inflation is much, much lower than where it is today. That sets the stage for the Fed to take a dovish pivot by the third quarter of 2022 at which point you're going to see the U-turn materialize in both the economy and stocks. So this is pain before gain, Mm -hmm. but this three or two months of pain that we have here could be bad. It could be pretty severe because, I mean, look at Snap. It's down 40% today. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a wipeout. And that mm-hmm. stock was already down something like 70% from its highs before it dropped 40% today. So the damage is, is pretty severe, but I think there's some fabulous long-term buying opportunities in, these, uh, in the market at these mm-hmm. current levels. So we're staying constructive. We're staying mm-hmm. bullish, but we're fully prepared for what could be a pretty messy June, maybe in July too. Mm-hmm. So, and that kind of brings me to my next question. You you know, you are traditionally pretty bullish on a lot of the things that you research because you're doing that research and you understand what's going on. How does this fear that you're talking about, how is that going, how should investors be taking that fear and uh, applying it to uh, what they're seeing with inflation, with the market, with the Fed, with all of it? Well, what you have to understand is during during bull markets, everyone's a long-term investor and during bear markets, everyone's a short-term investor. Mm Uh, like when when you're in a bull market and the rising tide's lifting all boats, everyone's like three, four, or five years down the road. They think with a long-term time horizon. But in bear markets, no one gives two flying blanks about uh, the mm. long-term horizon. It's all about that short term because a lot can happen in short times, in short periods during bear markets. Snap can drop forty percent in a day in a bear market. That's what happens in bear markets. So. Everybody's mindset becomes immediately shortened during bear markets. And that's why you have to acknowledge the short term kind of trading going on in the U.S. stock market today, because that's where the market's mindset is. It's not about, you know, these companies are going to survive through the recession. They're going to thrive on the other side and they're going to be long term winners. That's 100 percent true. Snap. If you have a three to five year time horizon, Snap stock is a 100% fabulous generational buying opportunity at mm-hmm. current levels. I mean, truly remarkable. Just let me let me share a chart with you real quick. Sure. Let me. I got this new screen sharing tool, everybody. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm pretty pretty excited about that. Mm-hmm. Let me go to let me go to my Snap chart. And for our here. audio listeners, we're just bringing up a chart of Snap right now. Oh yeah, sorry, I forgot that there's audio on here. There we're is. Audio. Bring, uh, we do have I, our audio only listeners, which is great. We love them too. A chart of Snap on uh, on wide charts. I'm going to mm-hmm. pull up the uh, the fundamental chart here, and we're going to look at the valuation on it. Um. Do, 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 do. We're going to look at the price to sales ratio on Snap at sure. the current moment. Um, and we're going to pull up that max chart. So here we go. We can see that price to sales on Snap right now is about 4.9 times trailing sales, right? Okay. So at 4.9 times trailing sales, that is below where the valuation was at the trial of the COVID-19 pandemic collapse. It got to about eight times trailing sales on March 20th, 2020. Mm-hmm. It is below where this stock was in late 2018 when this was a $5 stock. I remember it back mm-hmm. then. That was trading around seven times, a little bit under 6.7 times trailing sales. So now we're at 4.8. So we are meaningfully lower than the lowest valuation this stock has ever traded at. Mm-hmm. So for long-term investors, Snap is a fantastic buy here. I mean, what they're doing with augmented reality software, they're not even really trying to be a social media company anymore. What they're trying to do is build um, AR software kits to enable um, uh, AR commerce, which okay. is – let me stop sharing my screen here. I think we got the picture of the valuation. <laughs> Um, so Snap is really doing some really cool and innovative things with augmented reality. I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys have been on the Snapchat app recently, but where they have their their AR try-on filters. Okay. Um, they're very hidden in the app. They're not doing a great job of advertising them. But mm-hmm. if you go and find them in the application, they're very cool. You can try on mm-hmm. watches with their with their lenses. You can try on clothes. You can try on glasses. Prada and Gucci. You can try on their glasses. Uh, through the app so it's a really cool feature it's mm-hmm. really advanced and that is the future of shopping snapchat is opening up that dev kit so that other retailers can now use those ar lenses on their own websites snap is trying to become a b2b solutions provider for augmented reality commerce and we think that is a huge growth opportunity so long term this stock and this company fantastic mm-hmm. fantastic buy at current levels but you have to understand that in bear markets, people don't really care about that. Mm-hmm. In bear markets, they care about, okay, they're getting a huge digital advertising slowdown right now, snaps at the epicenter, epicenter of it, estimates need to come down, the stock's gonna go down. Mm-hmm. So you're gonna get that near-term flush out. That's gonna happen in Pinterest, that's gonna happen in the trade desk, that's gonna happen in Facebook, that's gonna happen in Google, it's gonna happen in anything that has any digital advertising exposure. Mm-hmm. Is because of this slowdown, estimates have to come lower, so the stock's gonna go lower. Mm-hmm. What we have to do as long-term investors is go through the wreckage and find the opportunities that are trading at generationally low valuations mm-hmm. that have fantastic long-term growth prospects, whether that be through augmented reality shopping or digital advertising or some combination of the two, mm-hmm. and buying the dips in those and mm-hmm. holding through the noise. That's what we as long-term investors have to do today to succeed in these markets. So based, um, on, what, based on what you're saying, it seems like Snap is checking all those boxes right now. I think Snap is a fantastic buy. hmm fantastic buy at these levels like i said all-time low valuation sub 5x trailing sales Mm -hmm. for what will probably be a 20 to 30 percent long-term revenue compounder with an 80 percent potential to be an 80 percent gross margin business that 
has potential for 40% plus operating margins. Yeah, this is a fantastic stock to buy and own here, but only if you're willing to own it for the next three, four, five years. If you're looking to buy and sell this thing in three months, six uh -huh. months, Folks, it, it could get ugly uh, yeah. over that time frame simply because the economy is rapidly slowing. Advertising gets hit during slowdowns. 2001, ad spend dropped 5%. 2009, ad spend dropped 10%. 2020, ad spend dropped 4%. So recessions tend to knock down ad spending 5 to 10%. So mm -hmm. we're talking, you know, a pretty sizable slowdown. And that, you know, that is Snap's business today. So Snap oh, stock, oh. short term. Definitely has some major headwinds. Long term, the value creation potential from a 5x trailing sales multiple uh, for a 20% compounder with 80% gross margin profile is fantastic. So yes, I absolutely love Snap stock at current levels. But there are other stocks mm -hmm. in the digital advertising space that are not so great buys right now mm -hmm. and that need a little bit more of a flush out and or simply need to be avoided because they don't have the same long term growth prospects as a Snap. So you got to be selective, mm -hmm. but you still have to have that long-term mindset in mind, despite the fact that the market's saying it doesn't give, you know, any, doesn't care about the, the long-term outlook for these companies. And it's all about the short-term. You got to mm -hmm. sometimes put that to the side and stay focused on the long-term. Well, speaking of long-term, another long-term stock that we've talked about in the past and one that you've been pretty bullish on um, is Lucid. Uh, we haven't checked on them in a while. And the reason I mention this is because you be, it seems that you become a little concerned with their costs, um, despite, again, maintaining a bullish outlook. Um, but can you discuss kind of where, what you're seeing with Lucid right now and why, uh, again, still a buy, but maybe not as aggressive as you have talked about it in the past? Yeah, so I absolutely love Lucid long term. Again, I think Lucid is the technology leader in a secular growth electric vehicle space. And as you know, I believe in tech leaders to become economic leaders. So I do believe that Lucid will become number one, number two, number three player in the entire trillion dollar electric vehicle market at scale and therefore is a fantastic long-term investment opportunity the backing of the uh saudi public investment fund is also a massive uh bonus for lucid shareholders because not only is big oil just essentially pumping money into lucid to make sure it doesn't fail uh but they're also becoming one of lucid's biggest customers they have that hundred thousand order uh on deck right now that lucid is uh starting on um today so Love Lucid long term. But yeah, let's go to the short term. They're having to raise prices on already very expensive vehicles. So you're talking about a vehicle that was already 80, 90, $100,000 plus, and now it's probably going to be 110, $120,000, $130,000 plus. That should have a negative impact on demand. Maybe not today, but if those prices stay elevated mm -hmm. uh, for the, you know, maybe next two or three years, not to mention production capacity hasn't been cut yet, but there's chances that it could get cut, especially if the slowdown that we're talking about that we just talked about continues over the next few months. So there mm -hmm. could be some, some production cuts there. So there are definitely some near-term headwinds on Lucid's radar, which, uh -huh. again, if you're looking at Lucid stock from a two- to three-month perspective, the stock could struggle because of these near-term headwinds. But down here at the levels that it's currently at, with the long-term growth prospects it has, Lucid is a fantastic long-term investment opportunity. Um, so, again, it's a short-term versus a long-term. You're playing this kind of tug-of-war here, 
And during times like this, you have to ask yourself, what type of investor are you? Do you want to be a trader that's getting in and out of the markets and tries to make money in the stock market every single day, every single week, every single month? Are you a person that is a long-term investor that wants to buy and hold high-quality assets and let them appreciate over longer periods of time? I fall in the latter camp. I know mm -hmm. a lot of smart people that fall in the latter camp. I also know a lot of smart people that fall in the former camp. Mm -hmm. Decide what type of investor you are and execute that strategy in these markets regardless of how the markets uh, are acting. Mm -hmm. um, so long-term investors, buy and hold lucid, stick through the noise and let this high-quality asset appreciate asset appreciate over the next three, five, seven years, but still very long-term bullish on lucid, absolutely. So do these short-term headwinds that you're talking about have an impact in the outlook in that long-term view? No, or is not at all. Something? No, no, okay, no. No, not, no. I mean, what they do in um, mathematically speaking is they mm -hmm. maybe push out your estimates one or two years. Okay. So let's say Lou said, you know, we say they're going to deliver a million cars by 2027. Well, mm -hmm. maybe there's some slowdown here, demand slowdown, production slowdown. So they don't really get to their, you know, targets for 23, 24 until mm -hmm. 25, 26. So then our million target gets pushed back to 28, 29. So what it does is it pushes back estimates maybe one or two years, mm -hmm. which because, you know, net present value time has money and, you know, the discount rate there that does dilute the net present value. So you do get some knock there, mathematically speaking, but mm -hmm. that knock is not substantial. And if you're a long-term investor, it's not truly meaningful. So um, does the, do the short-term headwinds have an impact on the long-term? Um, I can't broadly say no, but mm. in the specific cases where the answer is no, that's where the buying opportunities are. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some where the near-term headwinds do have an impact on the long-term growth, and that's where you don't want to be buying the dip. That's mm -hmm. a name like Workhorse or a name like Lordstown Motors in the EV sector. Mm -hmm. Those are companies that got hit by some pretty sizable near-term headwinds. Workhorse basically lost its giant uh, order um, mm -hmm. from the USPS and has been trying to win it back ever since, but won't win it back. That was a slam against the company's technology, basically saying the tech wasn't good at mm -hmm. all. That is an, has significant implications for the long-term growth trajectory of Workhorse. So if you're talking about estimates there, you had an estimate for that company 2027, 2028, that doesn't get pushed back a couple years. That may never happen. Mm -hmm. So you got to look at our long-term estimates getting delayed or long-term estimates just evaporating. Mm -hmm. In the case where they're evaporating, like Workhorse, like Lordstown Motors, stay away. Mm -hmm. Those are not by the dips. Those are stocks that could go to zero. Those are stocks you don't want to touch at all. But in the case where the long-term estimates are just getting delayed by one or two years, like a Lucid, mm -hmm. um, and even like a Rivian, yep. those are stocks you want to start looking to buy uh, in this chaos because they are still fabulous long-term investments. They're just getting hit by some near-term headwinds that won't change the ultimate destination of that company or stock. They'll just change the timeline a little bit. So we're talking as we're on the topic of timeline when it comes to EVs. Uh, we are seeing a pretty dramatic shift, I would say, with at least in at the very bare minimum, the concept of electric vehicles within our you know, popular culture. Uh, we've mm -hmm. discussed, you know, uh, individual companies like Lucid and Neo and Workhorse in the past, but what does this broad EV adoption kind of look like in the coming years and in that sector? Uh, electric vehicle adoption, in my opinion, is going to accelerate because of the current geopolitical climate mm -hmm. uh, and macroeconomic climate. Uh, yes, battery costs are going up. 
uh, mm-hmm. because lithium, you know, the raw input prices are going up, the raw metals. But what you have to remember, there's a couple things to keep in mind here. One, raw input prices are not a major influencer of costs for an electric vehicle. Lithium prices increased by 13% per year throughout the 2010s and also throughout the 2010s, battery pack prices, lithium ion battery pack prices decreased by more than 90%. So you had a 13% annual increase in the cost of lithium, yet a cumulative 90% plus decrease in the cost of lithium ion batteries. Mm -hmm. That tells you right on its face that the raw input prices do not drive or influence the trajectory in a meaningful manner of lithium ion batteries, of the electric vehicle batteries. So what does? Well, what does influence the price of batteries is R&D and chemistry, mm-hmm. R&D and material science, economies of scale, automated manufacturing. Those things are the drivers of lithium ion battery manufacturing costs. And that's why despite a 13% per year increase in lithium prices, lithium ion battery prices dropped more than 90% because we had a lot of R&D in chemistry. How do we make these things? We had a lot of R&D in material science. How do we combine these materials more cost effectively? We had a lot of economies of scale kicking in. The production lines got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And we added some weight there so we got a benefit from the economies of scale and now we're starting to leverage automation to make these things also more cost effective to produce so those drivers are only going to get bigger and more powerful and stronger over the next several years so yes raw input prices for batteries for electric vehicles are increasing today but one that price increase is temporary. It's only mm-hmm. going to happen in 2022. In 2023, raw input prices are going to go back to declining. Mm-hmm. And two, the, um, the R&D and science and, and chemistry and material science, the economies of scale, those factors are going to continue to drive costs lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. So I think that electric vehicle costs, clean energy costs in general – They've been on this big downtrend. They're mm-hmm. having this anomalous spike in 22, mm-hmm. and then they're going to go back to their you know long-term downtrend. That this is not the beginning mm-hmm. of a reversal. This is an anomalous spike back to yeah. the downtrend. So that's the first big point on electric vehicles and why I think that electric vehicle adoption is actually going to accelerate. The second mm-hmm. point is that it's all relative. Mm-hmm. Electric vehicle costs are going up to today because every cost is going up today. Okay, Mm -hmm. so when you look across the board at the electric vehicle price increases that you're seeing, um, well, first off, uh, the IEA just came out with a study that said if raw input prices remain where they are today, Mm -hmm. then by the end of the year, lithium ion battery pack prices are going to increase by 15 percent. Okay, that's a big jump. Yeah. But put it in context. Oil is up 50 percent this year. Mm -hmm. Natural gas has doubled this year. Mm hmm. 100% 100% gain, 50% gain. Lithium ion batteries, 15% gain in 2022 is chump change. It's yeah. nothing. Yep. So, yes, lithium ion battery prices are going up. Yes, electric vehicle prices are going up. But guess what? They're going up much less than 
fossil fuel costs. Mm -hmm. So it's all relative. We're in an inflationary environment. Cost is going up across the board. Demand is going to shift to the things where cost is going up less intensely. Mm -hmm. And that's in electric vehicles. It's also in solar. Mm -hmm. Per recent research and per uh, industry exec kind of commentary from the previous quarter, looks like solar costs drop about 20% year to date. Again, that's less than the 50% increase in oil. That's less than the 100% increase in natural gas. So solar prices are increasing. Absolutely. Correct. True. But they're increasing much less intensely than fossil fuel costs. So I think there's a demand shift towards solar despite the price increases because relatively speaking, they're getting cheaper than the alternatives. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason why I think electric vehicle adoption and clean energy adoption can accelerate in the midst of the current geopolitical climate because their inflation is less intense than the inflation being seen everywhere else. And that is because that is a direct byproduct of mm -hmm. the secular cost decline drivers mm -hmm. in those technologies. The R&D in chemistry, the R&D in materials and science, the uh, economies of scale. These technologies have very positive learning rates. The more we make of them, the more we learn how to cost effectively produce them, the lower their costs go. Mm -hmm. Those things have great learning rates. Fossil fuels don't. Consequently, the inflationary pressures in fossil fuels are much more intense today than they are in uh, electric vehicles, in uh, solar, in hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And to that end, there's going to be a demand shift towards heavier usage of those items. And that's why I think uh, EV stocks are pretty, pretty solid bet here. Same with all clean tech stocks. I think this is kind of like a critical inflection point for adoption of those technologies. So that was a very long-winded way of answering your question, but the short of it is that I think electric vehicle adoption is going to accelerate in 23, 24, 25 at rates that the market is not expecting. And because it's going to be above expected growth, EV stocks are going to outperform in those years. And again, even despite that 15% jump that you're talking about and lifting my on batteries, uh, sales of electric vehicles in the U.S. in the first quarter of 2022 rose 60% year over year, correct? And globally, they were up 75% year over year. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. So again, no slowdown in this industry right mm -hmm. now. No slowdown. And for those of us that think that you can't make an electric vehicle as cheap as a gas-powered car, it's already happening in China. Okay. So the IEA... Again, they just released this massive uh, EV market outlook 2022 report. And in that report, they posted the kind of range of sales prices and the median sales prices of cars, different types of cars in different countries. And in most countries, the average sales price of a gas-powered car is significantly lower than the average sales price of an electric vehicle. But in China, the average sales price of an electric car and the average sales price of a gas-powered vehicle are nearly identical. And the range is such that you got a wider range on EVs so that there's a whole bunch of cars that are actually EVs that are actually selling below um, gas-powered car average sales prices. Mm -hmm. So China has achieved electric vehicle cost parity. Now, okay. why is that? Economies of scale. Mm -hmm. China is the largest electric vehicle market in the world by a wide margin. 3.3 million electric vehicles were sold in China in 2021. That is more than the rest of the world combined. The rest of the world sold 3 million EVs in 2021. So China's EV market is bigger than the rest of the world's EV market. Mm -hmm. They have achieved significantly larger economies of scale in China than 
anybody has achieved anywhere else. And it's no coincidence that in China, where they have bigger economies of scale for EV production, EV costs have reached parity with gas-powered uh, car costs. So oh. to that end, we think that provides a very clear roadmap for the US, for Europe, for South America, for different economies across the world to through economies of scale, mm -hmm. achieve cost parity with gas-powered vehicles. And that's before you even factor in further R&D from you know, material science and chemistry, which will drive costs meaningfully lower than gas-powered vehicle costs um, in the long term. And we think that by 2025, globally, we'll be at cost parity. If not, you know, EV costs will be lower than gas-powered cars. And by 2030, EVs are going to be 20, 30, 40% cheaper than gas-powered cars. That, that's an inevitability, and we're investing for that inevitability, not really worrying about this little anomalous spike in 2022. Long-term outlook, very favorable. We think that, yeah, again, EV stocks are going to outperform meaningfully over the next three years, five years, and 10 years. Well, what I want to do right now is I definitely want to shift gears a little bit to some uh, topics that we haven't discussed on the show before. Okay. Um, but again, uh, so starting off with biotech. Um, yes. How has the biotech market fared through this market crash? Not well. Okay. Biotech is crash because biotech is the uh, paragon of we don't make money today companies. Mm -hmm. Uh, biotech, they're all companies that are developing potentially breakthrough world-changing drugs and therapies that are going through clinical trials. And it's all about what those drugs, the monetary value those drugs could produce in the future. Mm -hmm. So how you calculate the valuation for those companies is it's 100% reliant upon future cash flows okay, and 0% reliant upon what that company is doing today. Mm -hmm. So clinical stage biotech companies, biopharmaceutical companies have been hit exceptionally hard by the recent market sell-off. And I think that's creating a pretty good buying opportunity in that sector because mm -hmm. the technicals and fundamentals are lining up pretty positively. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about the technicals and fundamentals and what you look at when you're evaluating the biotech sector? Right. So uh, fundamentally speaking, uh, something like 86, 87 mm -hmm. uh, biotech stocks are currently trading below their cash positions, okay. meaning that there are let's call it 90. There are 90 biotech stocks in the market mm -hmm. whose current market cap is less than the amount of cash they have on the balance sheet. Okay. That is ridiculous. And it's an all-time high. We only got to about that number, the mm. number of biotech stocks trading below cash value. Historically, it's peaked at 20. Okay. Back in like 09, it peaked at 20. In like 2020, it peaked in 20. Back in 01, it peaked at 20. So even through some deep recessions and deep market routes, mm -hmm. the number of biotech stocks in the market trading below cash value never peaked above 20. Mm -hmm. And yet today we're at 90. We're at four or five times that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a pretty compelling fundamental case for why biotech stocks are pretty oversold. Okay. There's also a pretty compelling um, technical case. Mm -hmm. I can share that chart with you. Sure. Going to my cool little 
new <laughs> chart sharing screen. Um, let's see here. Let me, let me pull up the XBI, which is a biotech ETF. Mm-hmm. All right, so here you go. So we can see this chart here. You got a good view of it, Aaron? Yep, uh, we can see it. Per good, yeah. Okay, so there are three things we're looking at when I see XBI today. Mm -hmm. Right here, this white line. That's the yep. COVID-19 support line. Okay. So <laughs> we fell to about 69 bucks and change. It's called mm -hmm. 69 flat um, yep. during the March 2020 sell-off um, in the biotech ETF. Mm-hmm. Today, we're at 67 and change, so we kind of broke below it, but there we're is definitely it, yeah. some strong support right around that upper 60, mid-60 range for, for XBI. Mm -hmm. So you got the COVID-19 support. That's the first sure. level of support we're looking at. The second is these oversold conditions. So as you can see on the relative strength index, the RSI, mm -hmm. we've dropped into oversold territory here in early May. Mm -hmm. um, that's only happened in not just oversold i mean we're clocking in at what is it 25 so mm -hmm. pretty substantially oversold okay that's only happened three times well actually twice before mm -hmm. in the history of the ctf as you can see going all the way back yep um once was in uh early 2016 mm -hmm. when there was a bunch of worries that the government was gonna press up against biotechs um and really stop them from price gouging and that correlated with a you know local minimum in the stock that turned into a pretty big rally or mm -hmm. the etf it turned into a pretty big rally then it happened again um in late 2018 when we had a very similar market crash we're seeing today a fed driven market crash you've talked about this before again that correlated or coincided with a local bottom in the etf that mm -hmm. led to a pretty big rally over the next year uh, and so we're getting that oversold condition again down to this 25 handle. History says this should co coincide with a local minimum that leads to a pretty big rally over the next um, few months, maybe a few years. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing we're seeing in the technical pattern is if we look at this uptrend that the ETF has formed all the way back to April 09. So mm -hmm. the depth of the of the great financial crisis. Mm -hmm. We have a pretty solid uptrend here, mm -hmm. a very solid uptrend. We got the lows are connecting here. We got the highs are connecting here from, you know, summer 2015 all the way to early 21. Got this pretty solid uptrend. And we're running into support right now, that uptrend, which clocks in right around 65, 66, coincides really with this kind of COVID-19 support line. Mm -hmm. So right in this area, right in the 65, 66, 67, 68, 69 area, there is a lot of technical support for the biotech ETF to bottom reverse course and stage a pretty big rally. Mm -hmm. I think things look good for the biotech ETF. I know we talk about recession indicators. I know we talk about economic slowdown. Things are getting pretty ugly. Yeah. But this is one of those things where it's just fundamentally undervalued and technically oversold to a point where it might work even if the economy continues to struggle over the next few months. Um, so biotech's a place that we're starting to get pretty constructive on at the current moment, for sure. Awesome. Uh, another another topic that we haven't touched on before, but uh, I want to touch on today is uh, vertical. The concept of vertical farming. Um, ah, I love vertical farming. Yeah, <laughs> we you know we're in the midst of the the largest food crisis the world has seen since the Great Depression. Uh, people are struggling to find answers. Um, and again, if, but if there's one industry you think could make a big 
role in getting us out of the problem, uh, I think, is vertical farming. Uh, right. So before we kind of get into that, can you explain a little bit of, you know, how we're in the position that we are right now when it comes to this uh, current food shortage and uh, take us from there? Um, yeah. So, well, before the Russia-Ukraine crisis hit, before COVID-19 hit, Mm -hmm. uh, the world was looking at an inevitable food crisis where food production is food production growth is lagging population growth. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with a lack of farmable land in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, there's simply only so much land that can be farmed that can be used to grow good crops, good food. Uh, that land is pretty maxed out today. So there's a shortage of farmable land and we're at capacity pretty much. Mm -hmm. Um, climate change is taking a toll on the output and yield of those farms that are out there today. Um, hotter weather, more extreme weather conditions, colder weather. It's the more extreme conditions that are causing these crops to not be as plentiful as they once were. So that's a huge factor here. And then population growth. The population continues to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. So you're getting lower food output more people on planet that's a recipe that means we're going to lead you know kind of lead straight into a, a food shortage a food mm -hmm. crisis um that wasn't going to happen until 2050 2060 2070 i mean long long time down the road so it wasn't a problem a lot of people were paying attention to before uh, recent events but recent events have sort of thrust this into the spotlight because mm -hmm. russia is the breadbasket of europe russia supplies a lot of wheat to europe and throughout the globe so taking russia offline essentially means somebody's got to feed europe Mm -hmm. So that's wheat that is going to feed another country like the United States is now going to help feed Europe. Mm -hmm. In that sense, our food shortage has become now more extreme and this problem has become more pressing. So what was a food crisis that may emerge in 20, 30 years mm -hmm. is now a food crisis that is here and now. Mm -hmm. And food security is becoming a very big thing in the markets today. Okay. And we think that companies that pioneer solution to this food crisis mm -hmm. are going to generate enormous economic value. Again, one of our big themes is technologies that solve problems. Mm -hmm. Vertical farming is that for the food crisis. So that's mm -hmm. why we're pretty constructive on vertical farming at the current moment. It's a necessary and critical solution to solving what mm -hmm. is an increasingly large food problem, not just in the U.S., but globally. So how is vertical farming the answer to this problem that we're seeing right now? Uh, right. Great question. Yeah, I forgot to explain vertical farming. <laughs> um, vertical farming is the idea of using a combination of technologies to grow food inside these giant sort of greenhouses. Okay. Now, this can be in a giant sort of like factory-like building mm -hmm. in the middle of Kansas, mm -hmm. um, where we basically take land that was not farmable, but mm -hmm. build a giant warehouse type thing on it. And then we can now grow plants, crops, foods in this warehouse using um, uh, solar panels, using uh, solar light from the um, uh, uh, from different um, photonics. Um, we can use a lot of different technologies to hydroponics to make these things grow inside to control the climate. Mm -hmm. And then what we can do is, 
you have one layer and then you can stack another layer on top of it because outside you can only have one layer because it's natural sunlight mm-hmm. and if you you know build a uh one layer of, of crops and you stack another layer on top of it that mm-hmm. first layer is not going to get sun mm-hmm. what these um vertical farming warehouses do is you have one layer mm-hmm. then a bunch of artificial light and heat and climate controlled sensors and then you build another layer so that and then you build another layer and another layer so that each layer actually looks and feels like it's getting real sunlight real good growing conditions optimized growing conditions so what you do is you increase your yield and your output dramatically Uh, again these can happen in giant warehouses in the middle of kansas Mm -hmm. or perhaps more interestingly they can happen in high rises in the middle of manhattan Mm -hmm. Like you can take a an apartment building and in Manhattan, hundred stories up, and repurpose it to be a hundred stories of crops. Mm-hmm. So each story is a different layer to this vertical farm. We're growing tomatoes on this one, corn on this one, wheat on this one, so on and so forth. And you can optimize each level to the growing conditions that are perfect for that particular crop. So mm-hmm. in that sense, you also get rid of the extreme weather, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about rain. You don't have to worry about too much sun, too little sun, mm-hmm. too wet, too dry. You control it. It's an entirely controlled yep. environment. So you imp- uh, improve your yield and your output. So that's basically what vertical farming is mm-hmm. and how it solves the current food crisis mm-hmm. is it allows you to grow more food with less resources and less area. Yeah, and it sounds, uh, you it sounds can, like in that city scenario that you're cutting transportation costs because instead of having... Well, yeah, that's a whole other thing about it. Exactly. Yeah. So an, a, a big part of the food shortage today is the supply chain crisis. Mm-hmm. It's not so much that we're not growing enough food. Russia is growing a lot of food. Uh, it's just that there's a supply chain break between us and Russia. Mm-hmm. We can localize supply chains via vertical farming. We can build skyscrapers in Manhattan that have all of these this this food output so that Manhattan is now not sourcing its food from, you know, two, uh, two three, four, five, six, seven, twelve hours away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sourcing it locally right mm-hmm. there. So it definitely localizes supply chains. It reduces time from growing to buying which also improves the quality and freshness mm-hmm. of whatever you're buying of the fruit of the vegetables. So there's a lot of upsides to vertical farming. Um, so, it allows you to grow more, grow more consistently and reliably, mm-hmm. reduces resources, reduces costs, localizes supply chains, improves time, improves quality and improves freshness. Um, so across the board, it is just superior to legacy farming. And we think that it's time to shine is now. So what inning are we in vertical farming? First, okay. First inning, baby. This is the first inning of vertical farming. I mean, uh, there there are companies out there that are just starting to do this. Okay. Some are doing the skyscraper route. Mm -hmm. Some are doing the big, you know, warehouse factories in Kansas route. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're all experimenting. It's all Mm -hmm. trial and error right now. They are all growing stuff. Okay. Mostly it's like leafy vegetables. Mm -hmm. Um, But... This is the first inning. It's okay. a long-term ball game. The reason we like it, we've always liked it for you know three, four years now. Mm-hmm. But every emerging technology sort of needs its that critical inflection point where the need for it 
mm-hmm. becomes so large that investment into it rapidly accelerate, accelerates and development of the tech and expansion of the tech mm-hmm. dramatically accelerates too. And we think we're at that critical inflection point with vertical farming. It's always been around. Mm-hmm. There's been experimentations. There are vertical farms up and running across the United States. But it's kind of been this like, ah, we'll get to it when the need is there for it type of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, the need is there now. <laughs> and so we think that this is the critical inflection point where that technology sort of burst onto the mainstream and those stocks start to outperform on Wall Street. So we're really excited about the vertical farming space. Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, shifting gears into our market check-in uh, right. with the Fed, um, we have... Uh, PC numbers coming out on Friday. Um, we're also in a rate hike cycle right now. And, you know, so how is this impacting inflation? What should our takeaway be with any any updates with the Fed? Um, it goes back to what we said earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, the Fed, the Fed controls the destiny of the <laughs> stock market yeah. and of the economy today. Mm-hmm. They're going to pivot dovish. Mm-hmm. I think that's inevitable. It's the just question is when. Quite, yeah, matter of when. Yeah. The question is when are they going to pivot dovish mm-hmm. and how much damage is going to be done in the meantime. Um, the the good thing is that inflation equation is demand and supply. Mm-hmm. The more demand destruction we get, the more painful it is in the near term. Yeah. The quicker inflation, the more more quickly, the quicker. I'm not an English major. I don't know. I don't know which way it goes. Um, the more quickly inflation will decelerate over the next few months and the more quickly the Fed will pivot dovish. So Snap's warning last night of demand destruction across the economy. Terrible news today. It mm-hmm. hurts. It hurts bad. Mm-hmm. But... The flip side of the coin, the silver lining, is that I think that could be an accelerant to the Fed pivoting dovish because it'll be an accelerant to inflation decelerating if indeed that demand destruction is happening, which I think at this point it's very clear that it is given the weakening of the macroeconomic data, given the slowdown in big retail earnings reports, given SNAP's warning. I think it's inevitable at this point that the consumer is slowing, spending is slowing, demand destruction is happening. Mm-hmm. That means inflation is going to come down. That means the Fed's going to pivot dovish. I give it three months. If it's longer, stocks are going to stay weaker for longer. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the stock market will not bottom and reverse course until the Fed pivots dovish. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, and then switching into our crypto check-in, uh, you know, any Ooh. updates? Uh, I think Bitcoin's temporarily kind of holding around 30000 yeah. Oh man, Bitcoin, cryptos. You know, it's it's. It, are we seeing continued fallout from from the Terra drop, or is this continued fallout from the Terra drop, and then not enough wipeout yet? Mm-hmm. Um, one of my crypto analysts just sent me an article. Adam Newman, the yeah. former CEO of WeWork, the disgraced and fallen CEO of WeWork. Mm-hmm. Do you know that story? Yeah. Yep. So we work maybe for some of our other listeners. Can you t- talk about it real quick? Yeah, so we work was this. I mean, it's honestly a fabulous idea of a company of office sharing um, mm-hmm. would make a lot of sense in the post COVID world. Uh, yep. This happened before COVID, though, obviously. Um, fabulous company, fabulous idea. Adam Newman was the head of it, but Adam Newman kind of got overly ambitious, thought too 
I don't know, too highly of himself or too highly of his business and just overexpanded, spend to grow, spend to grow, spend to grow. They launched We Live, We Grow. They wanted to do an airline, like a whole bunch of things. Mm-hmm. And the company ended up basically getting too big for itself, had to, Adam Newman was forced out. They canceled an IPO. The company fired a bunch of people, mm-hmm. was a $47 billion company. Now it's maybe a 3 or $4 billion company. So just a massive fallout. Uh Anyways, the man responsible for all that, Adam Newman, is now in crypto. Uh And he just raised a $70 million round led by the A16Z fund, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, for some blockchain-based carbon trading tools platform or something like that. (laughs) And it's like, okay, um, Mm -hmm. weird. And then I I heard about the, the, what's his name, the the Martin Skelly, Skrelly? You know, the, the disgraced biotech hedge fund guy. Um, he's also in cryptos now and just mm-hmm. raised some money um, in the crypto world. So I don't like that. I don't like that. We just had this massive wipeout. And now all of a sudden these people who failed in Something the else. real economy yeah. are now yeah. trying to have do-overs in the digital economy, not digital mm-hmm. economy, the crypto economy. Yep. And it's like, uh, that that doesn't does not give me confidence in the state of the crypto markets today. It, it makes mm-hmm. me, uh, it just makes me feel a little <laughs> sick about it. Yeah, yeah. And it tells me we need further wipeout, further capitulation, mm-hmm. because you know our thesis. Yep. We need a consolidation in the crypto markets, mm-hmm. wherein the best crypto survive and the worst get flushed out. Same thing happened with the internet boom and bust back in 2000, 2001. We need that today. The fact that all of these kind of do over projects are coming into the fold right now tells Mm -hmm. me we need more flush out. Mm -hmm. The flush out is, is not complete. Now you, you last week when we talked about Terra, one of the biggest takeaways was that hype doesn't equal quality at all. Um, but why do you think that hype continues to be such an influencer on the crypto market? Because it's not done flushing out. Okay. I mean, so long as hype continues to be a large driver of crypto prices, the crypto market will not have been fully flushed out. Mm-hmm. Um, hype will always be part of the equation because there are no earnings. There are no mm-hmm. revenues. There are no mm-hmm. cash flows. You can't benchmark to any fundamental metric. There's adoption, but not every crypto reports adoption. And mm-hmm. those that do report it infrequently. Okay. So you can't really benchmark to some fundamental metric. So in the absence of being able to benchmark to some fundamental metric, hype becomes a very real driver of prices. But so long as hype remains the biggest driver of prices, mm-hmm. The crypto markets are not done flushing. Okay. So I think we need further flush out. I unfortunately think that means Bitcoin goes lower. I unfortunately think that means high quality cryptos continue to go lower as well. Mm -hmm. But from current levels on a five, seven, 10 year time horizon, I believe those high quality cryptos will appreciate meaningfully in value, tremendously Mm -hmm. in value. Um, The trick is are you holding let's again you know draw a parallel to the uh dot com boom and bust are you holding amazon Mm -hmm. are you holding (laughs) pets.com 
Mm-hmm. Are you holding AOL and Yahoo mm-hmm. or are you holding NVIDIA? Mm-hmm. You know, like there are massive differences in the quality of cryptos out there right now. And it's really tough to discern what's going to be a survivor and thriver and what's going to be a burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, we think we do a pretty good job of, of discerning that, but it is a tall order. Mm-hmm. And so be very careful and very selective in the crypto markets today. Mm-hmm. Well, great information uh, and feedback. Uh, switching to our fan questions, uh, okay. rounding out the end of this podcast. Uh, Mia T, our girl, happy Wednesday, guys. Luke, can you talk to us about 3D printing technology, companies in the market over the next couple of years? Oh, I love 3D printing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, have one, I, I have one too. I have a, I mean, I, I have a 3D printer. It's a hobby kind of thing, but I love it. You can pretty much make anything. I, I did not know you had a 3D printer. Yeah, yeah, yep. What, who's the maker of it? Uh, Ender. I have an Ender gotcha. 3D. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I love 3D printing. Mm-hmm. Like vertical farming, this is an emerging technology mm-hmm. that is hitting a critical inflection point where I think the need is going to necessitate an acceleration of investment in and deployment of the technology. Okay. It's ready for, for the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um. There is going to be, as a result of the current geopolitical uh, situation, a massive recalibration of global supply chains. Mm -hmm. We used to globalize, outsource, and make things in China and India and Mexico for uh, dirt cheap labor. Mm -hmm. But the current supply chain crisis is forcing companies to rethink that uh, strategy and recalibrate their supply chains to be more localized. Mm -hmm. The problem with localizing supply chains is that you innately increased um, manufacturing costs because Mm -hmm. labor is a lot more expensive in the U.S. than it is in China. Mm -hmm. Um, The cost to make something, to build a factory and make something in that factory is a lot higher in the U.S. than it is in China. Mm -hmm. So your uh, manufacturing costs immediately go up when you start localizing and recalibrating your supply chains. Uh, But this is a cost that a lot of companies want to absorb because they want supply chain security, supply chain reliability. Um, they, you know, it's much better to be able to make a product, even if you got to make it at a higher cost than it is to not be able to make a product at all mm-hmm. and not sell anything. So, yeah. uh, supply chain security and reliability <laughs> are becoming more important than, yeah, than supply chain, um, uh, economics, but companies are only going to absorb so much of that cost, mm-hmm. uh, that cost increase. So they're going to look for ways to localize supply chains in cost efficient manners. And the most efficient manner to do so is via additive manufacturing because additive manufacturing, what it's going to do is it's going to allow you to replace two, three, four, five, six labor positions and have one machine with more productivity, constant uptime that is just churning out product, 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 material, 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 high quality without air um, and doing so at a fraction of the cost that you would be paying labor to do it otherwise. So Additive manufacturing is a cost-effective solution for supply chain localization. And if you do get the recalibration of supply chains that I think you're going to get over the next few years, additive manufacturing is going to be a focal point. In fact, the centerpiece of that localization. It's going to be the technology which enables that localization, that Mm -hmm. recalibration. And so I think that you're going to get a lot of companies Mm -hmm. buying a lot of 3D printers in 2022, mm-hmm. in 2023, in 2024. Mm-hmm. And I think the companies that make the best 3D printers are going to see huge 
demand increases, huge revenue increases. Mm-hmm. That's going to bring economies of scale. That's going to push margin hires, push margins higher. Mm-hmm. And the result is what is a hyper growth money losing 3D printing company in 2022 mm-hmm. is going to be a hyper growth massive money-making company by 2025. Mm -hmm. During that period, those companies, those stocks are going to be huge Mm -hmm. winners. I think, honestly, 3D printing stocks, Mm -hmm. certain 3D printing stocks could be the market's biggest winners between now and 2025. Mm -hmm. So what inning are we with 3D printing? Maybe the third. Okay. 3D printing is, is really interesting to me because it kind of went through its hype cycle and tried yeah. this enlargement. Yep. If you remember back in 2012, like 3D printers were going to like be in everybody's home. They were going to mm-hmm. replace 2D printers. Mm-hmm. That was the thinking. Yep. But that, that was not the real use case for 3D printers. That was a pipeline dream that was completely inaccurate. Mm-hmm. We don't need 3D – I mean, sorry, Aaron. You got a 3D printer in your home. I hope you have a lot of good time with it. Yeah. Yep. But nope. most of us don't need 3D printers in our home. We're not mm-hmm. making things. Most of us aren't craftsmen, yep. okay? Mm-hmm. We're not making things in our home. Mm-hmm. Who needs 3D printers are these companies, these factories, these manufacturers that are now localizing supply chains. They need 3D printers. The problem with the first kind of go-around of the 3D printing hype wave – is that those companies, 3D printing makers, made 3D printers for people mm-hmm. at home. Yep. Demand's not there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you had that super big hype cycle, and then it's like, oh, trial, dis- trial disillusionment, 3D printers are a fad, they're gone, they're never going to be a thing. Well, mm-hmm. now a real use case yep. is emerging for 3D printers. Mm-hmm. The localization of supply chains. Fortunately... Companies over the past three, four, five years, 3D printing companies kind of saw the writing on the wall for this. So they've rethought their strategies to now make 3D printers not for you and me at home, Mm -hmm. but industrial grade metal additive manufacturing printers ready to go on the factory floor and make a lot of product. Mm -hmm. Those printers are going to see huge demand over the next three to five years. So I think that in that sense, we're in the third inning, third Mm -hmm. or fourth inning in this revolution, where the first inning was this massive hype wave. The second inning was this massive trap disillusionment. Mm -hmm. And now we're in this third or fourth inning where we're going to start to enter the secular growth phase where the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth innings are going to bring about compounded, steady, stable growth in a lot of these companies. Awesome. Uh, Our our next question comes from C.S. Lowe. Uh, thanks, Aaron and Luke, for the answers. Really appreciate it. On Tuesday, Fed's chair made a few comments, and the market again reacted with a massive sell-off on Wednesday. Is this recurring duel between Fed's tough talk and Wall Street's attempt to push back uh, intimidate the Fed going to keep repeating itself? And if so, for how long before we see a stop to this quote-unquote fight? Which side, Fed or Wall Street, should or will likely give in first and why? Thank you. Right. No, excellent question. Yeah. And it goes back to what we've been talking about the whole podcast, right? Is that yeah. um, the Fed's tough talk is working. Yeah. It's working. It mm-hmm. is scaring the living S-H-I-T out of consumers <laughs> yeah. and companies. I mean, consumers are not spending. Go mm-hmm. ask Walmart. Go ask Target. Go ask Abercrombie & Fitch. Down mm-hmm. 35% today. The consumer is not spending as much anymore. They're scared. There's a lot of recession talk in the air. And guess what? Enterprises aren't spending either. Companies aren't advertising either because the consumer is the heartbeat of the economy. They slow. Everything else slows. So the Fed is has successfully scared everybody. Okay. 
but I don't think they're done scaring people. <laughs> the Fed wants inflate. Oh, no. Their their primary objective right now is inflation deceleration. Yeah. Get inflation to calm down. Mm-hmm. They can do that through actually hiking rates, and then also through continuing this tough talk, which creates additional demand destruction. Mm-hmm. So I think they stay on this tough talk route. Mm-hmm. I think the Fed continues to talk tough. I think they continue to hike rates, and I think they continue to beat wall street in this boxing match okay then eventually the fed's going to capitulate go dovish once inflation has a couple months of deceleration once the economy is a couple months into decelerating one stocks have, i mean stocks have been down for uh, six straight months now but a little bit deeper sell-off once we're kind of deeper into a bear market with the s p then i think the fed capitulates then i think wall street wins then i think stocks go higher but the next few months we'd be set at the top of this call set in the middle of the call we'll say at the end of the call the next few months could be pretty choppy because the economic slowdown has arrived the recession may have arrived already mm-hmm. q1 print gdp negative q2 print could be negative. Mm-hmm. It really could be. The way the way that I'm seeing the data come in, the yep. way that I'm seeing these retail reports come in, the way that I'm hearing companies talk, uh, it's not great. So the slowdown has inev- has definitely arrived. Um, I don't think the Fed's going to just stop because the slowdown has arrived. They're not going to stop until they see it in the data that inflation has cooled down. So mm-hmm. until that point comes, they're going to keep up the tough talk. And they're going to keep scaring the consumer. They're going to keep scaring the enterprise. They're going to keep uh, destroying demand. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, Fed wins. <laughs> Fed wins. Fed wins. And then Wall Street will win at the end of the day. But for now, the Fed is – and also, it's not really Fed versus Wall Street. I don't want to say like Fed's winning and Wall Street's losing. It's what yeah. The Fed's doing what they have to do. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They have to do this or else mm-hmm. inflation just runs wild. It's out of control and then we're in stagflation 1970s all over again, which mm-hmm. for what it's worth, we're not going to get a repeat of the 1970s. Let's mm-hmm. be abundantly clear on that, okay? We did not have the technology tools at our disposal to fight inflation in the 1970s that we do today. Mm-hmm. We have vertical farming. Mm-hmm. We have additive manufacturing. Mm-hmm. We have automation. We have robotics. We have digital technologies. Mm-hmm. We have e-commerce. We have all these things that we have the internet broadly. Uh, cloud computing that we didn't have in the 1970s so Mm -hmm. when inflation got crazy in the 1970s we kind of just had to accept it because we didn't have anything to dramatically improve productivity Mm -hmm. but today we do have those tools at our disposal and that will prevent us from having a 1970s era uh inflation decade uh, mm-hmm. repeating over the next 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm very confident in that claim. But uh, that doesn't mean we don't have inflation today. It doesn't mean the Fed doesn't want to kill inflation. They do. And they have to kill inflation for the good of the economy. They're going to successfully do that. It's going to cause us pain. We're ripping the Band-Aid off. But at the end of this pain, I think it's going to be a short-lived pain. We're going to get tremendous buying mm-hmm. opportunities. We're going to get a reversal. We're going to get a big rally. And then I think the next you know, 10 12 years are going to be pretty good for the markets. We just got to get through this inflation bout today. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of brings us to our last question from Tony Douglas uh, with a similar question from Danny Long. Uh, what is your bull case for the markets for the rest of the year? Exactly what I just said. Okay. <laughs> the bull case for the markets for the rest of the year yeah. is honestly the best thing that could happen. Yep. Is what Snap just said, everybody else says. Okay. 
Okay. Alphabet sees a big slowdown. Amazon mm-hmm. sees a big slowdown. Everybody sees a big slowdown. You okay. get this massive demand destruction. Mm-hmm. It causes earning estimates to go lower. It causes stocks mm-hmm. to take a 10 to 15% additional nosedive from where we currently are. Mm-hmm. This happens very quickly. Mm-hmm. Inflation decelerates very quickly. By July, the Fed is like, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Inflation is is really <laughs> on the decline. Mm-hmm. The economy is really down. We can go dovish. They pivot dovish. We get the U-turn in markets. The economy starts to come back to life. Inflation is under control because supply chains are normalizing. Mm-hmm. And then we get that second half massive rally in stocks, which hopefully leads into what will be a, a durable recovery for the next five to 10 years. So that is my bull case for stocks. The so, best case outcome, as weird as it may seem, mm-hmm. is a lot of pain in the near term. Because mm-hmm. the more pain we get now, the mm-hmm. closer we get to capitulation, the sooner we get to capitulation, mm-hmm. and the sooner we get to a Fed pivot, which unleashes a massive bull market for hopefully five to 10 years. So the faster things get worse, the faster things get better. Yeah. I mean, we have to destroy demand, Aaron. We just mm-hmm. have to. Inflation is red hot because supply is low Mm -hmm. and demand is high. Mm -hmm. Supply is starting to rebuild. The global supply chain pressure index is showing that supply chain pressures are easing. Mm -hmm. We're seeing, you know, in some of these manufacturing PMIs come out that production is indeed improving. So supply chains are improving. And the whole localization trend we just talked about Mm -hmm. is going to be a long-term tailwind for supply chains as well. So the supply side of the equation is starting to shape up. What we need to do now is shape up the demand side of the equation. Mm -hmm. Demand is too hot. We need to right-size it. Mm -hmm. And if we successfully right-size it or the sooner we successfully right size it the sooner we can get back to rallying in the stock market Mm -hmm. and unfortunately the way we right size it is through demand destruction you need demand destruction well as always another great discussion do you have any last thoughts or words before we wrap I think we covered a lot today. We did cover a lot today. No, I, mean, I think we covered we covered a lot of topics. Yep. Um, the markets are choppy. They're scary. If you're a long-term investor, I think there's a lot of potential on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you want to just you want to buy your favorite long-term, high-quality growth assets and just hunker down. I've said that week after week yep. after week, mm-hmm. and I'll say it again today because these markets are volatile. They're scary. They're going to go up. They're going to go down. They're going to have face-melting rallies. They're going to have gut-wrenching sell-offs. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be some days you're going to be like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Other days you're going to be like, oh, my goodness, what is going on? That's that's going to be the the roller coaster we're going to be on. Mm-hmm. So John Wooden, famous UCLA basketball coach, said, mm-hmm. you know, avoid the peaks and valleys. Uh, that's true in sports. It's true in stocks. Let's avoid mm-hmm. the peaks and valleys. Let's anchor ourselves in things we believe have. You know, in the long term, the stocks are going to go like this, up and to the right. Yep. Right now, they're going to go <laughs> yeah. zigzag, yo-yo. They may even go down, whatever. Mm-hmm. The long term, we are confident is going to be up and to the right. Anchor yourself in those. Survive through this turbulence. And then once we do get that dovish pivot, once we do get that U-turn, which I think we will get within the next three to four months, that's when these stocks that are high-quality assets will mm-hmm. start doing what they do, which is go up and to the right. Great. Uh, Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in our comments section. We'd love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover. And again, see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Bye, all.